All right. Good morning, church family. We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. If you remember right, last week we saw that new life is a beautiful gift to be thankful for. And we saw that in our messiness that Jesus loves us and we ought to be thankful for each other. And now we see sort of the nature of the mess in the church of Corinth. And we see, believe this or not, that there were people fighting in the church. Imagine that. I know it's difficult. But people were fighting in the church. And I've been around long enough in the church to see people fighting in the church. And here's one observation that I've made. I feel like we had this period, even in the life of our church, where it was almost like a sociological study on fighting because we had a lot of crazy things going on in our society and we were sort of at the epicenter of the world for a little while, it felt like. We had COVID going on, then we had George Floyd killed in the streets of Minneapolis, and then we had an election cycle. And here's what I observed in our church and the lives of people that I love and know and even in my own heart is that the most dangerous thing about you is the thing that you're most passionate about that's not Jesus. Because our self-righteousness is much more damaging to people around us than anything else. Sinners, yeah, they'll hurt you. They'll disappoint you. But self-righteous people, they'll really come after you. So I think what we learned in that period of time is that it really is Jesus alone that unites us. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I want to walk through slowly in this passage, 1 Corinthians, as he applies the gospel message to them and they're fighting. And I think there's going to be some parallels for us. So we're going to first of all look at the problem of division. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 10 through 11 to start. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. So he shows us the reason that there's division in the Corinthian church, and by extension, the reason that there's division among us. And the reason for division is that we either don't have the same mind or we don't have the same judgment. So I'm taking mind to mean, in this passage, the same doctrine. So in other words, there's disagreement about what the Bible says, the content of the truth. And so we can get at each other about doctrine. Now, Salt City, we definitely believe that doctrine is important. But here is the controlling doctrine, I believe, of the entire Bible and therefore the controlling doctrine of our church. Jesus loves sinners. If you're controlling doctrine, in other words, the lens by which you look through all other doctrine is a suffering Savior, you're never going to yell at anybody about that. You're never going to lose your temper and go off on somebody about that. 
it's going to be a brokenhearted holding on to the truth. But what can happen is we have differing minds about the truth, and instead of being brokenhearted and instructing one another patiently, we form camps. We get mad at each other, and we divide over the finer points of doctrine. It's important to have discussion, but it ought not lead to division. The second one is a little bit more complicated. We divide over doctrine, that's obvious to us, but we also divide over our judgments. And I think what he's talking about here is not so much the clear pronouncements of Scripture, the truth, he's talking about the way that you apply that truth. So judgment would be in the category of wisdom. So some people in the church are going to choose to drink alcohol, and some are going to choose not to drink alcohol. Some are going to choose one way of schooling for their kids, and some people are going to choose another way of schooling for their kids. And there's all sorts of judgment calls that we're all making throughout our lives on where we're going to go this way or whether we're going to go that way. And these aren't clearly laid out for us in the Bible, but we're sort of taking the doctrine of the Bible and we're applying it to our lives. I think this is where we can get in a lot of trouble because a lot of us hold on to our judgments like they are doctrines. And we have zeal and passion for the way that we've chosen to live our lives in certain ways, and it has nothing to do with a clear pronouncement from the scriptures, but it has to do with our conviction. I think that the category that the Bible would put that in is conscience issues. So some of you have like made these decisions like, I'm never going to watch an R-rated movie. But then you get in conversations with people in the church, and you're like, no one should ever watch an R-rated movie. And then somebody in your connection group is like, this is my favorite movie, it's an R-rated movie. You pull them aside, you're like, you should never watch R-rated movies. And all of a sudden, your conscience is being pronounced on other people, and you're starting to call things sin that aren't sin. And there then can be, right, the R-rated movie camp over here, and there can be the no R-rated movie camp over here, and there's this division and there's this fight and there's this danger, both sides, right? Like, there's the other side of that that's like, well, we have freedom in Christ to watch R-rated movies, and so if you're not watching R-rated movies, then you're really in sin because you, you should have the freedom to do that. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. You just fast forward the bad scenes, right? And what Paul is saying is that we need to be united with the same mind and the same judgment. Now, how in the world does that happen when there's so many different doctrines and there's so many different judgments that we're making? And I'm making the claim that we're going to disagree about certain judgments and that on finer points of doctrine, there's also going to be disagreement. So how do we come to agreement? And I think that part of the answer is to see that there are things that are more important than others. And if the most important thing to us 
is that Jesus died for our sins and that he loves sinful people, then that will inform how we interact with each other. So here's how I think we need to see sort of the finer points of doctrine and we need to see the larger points of doctrine. It's kind of the way that we see different types of English, okay? So you have Australian English, you have England English, you have Southern American English, you have Northeastern American English, and you can imagine a group of these people all in a circle together having a conversation about which form of English is correct. And so you have the guy from the South who's like, no, 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 the plural of you is y'all. And, so, and then we're like, no, 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 it's you guys. Y'all is not a word. And, and people from e- England are saying, no, that's called a rubbish bin. And we're saying, no, it's a trash can, right? I'm going to the loo. What's the loo? That's the bathroom. All right, we're having those type of conversations, and we're breaking down the finer points, and we're saying, I'm right and you're wrong. And you could imagine a group of people getting in a fight. Who's right? Who's wrong? Everybody's right. Because the foundational grammar principles of English are transferable throughout all of those different forms. But your accent and the specific way that that plays out in your life is not a matter of right and wrong. It's about your background. It's about where you grew up. It's a judgment call. And so we need to understand in the church where we're talking about things that are so important that we have to draw a line and where we're not talking about those things. So let me give you just an example on our elder team. Okay? Our elder team is comprised of people who have taken all different choices in the realm of school. So we've got elders who have homeschooled their kids. We have elders who send their kids to public school And we have elders who have sent their kids to private Christian school or have gone to private Christian school. And we've had discussions at our elder meetings about the merits of those different things, kind of informally. We didn't have like a whole elder meeting about it, but we've talked about that. And here's sort of the judgment that we've made as an elder team. The only wrong choice about schooling for your kids is to think that you have the right one. Because the guiding principle of school choice is we want to raise our kids in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And there are different ways of doing that. So one of the applications, I think, for our church is to think through, in connection group, things that we are going to decide for. In other words, they're a judgment call. And things that we really would divide for that are so important that we would fight them out within our church. So the problem of division is when we're zealous about secondary issues. The second thing we see in the text is the reason for division. So Paul gets really specific. This is the reason. So you've got sort of the surface level fighting. There's this problem in the church, and he gives the reason for it. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Okay, now this is really interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul seems to contradict what he's saying here. He says, you are to imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Okay, so he's saying there's this problem in the church. I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. But then later on he says, you are to follow me. So which is it, Paul? Here's what I think he is getting at. The problem is not that people are really following Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Jesus. The problem is that they're saying that they are. They're boasting that they are. So all of these characters that are listed here are worthy of admiration and followership. Okay, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, had the equivalent of like four PhDs. He was an eloquent writer, but he also had weaknesses. He was not a great public speaker. So people would get his letters, they'd read them, they'd be like, this guy is brilliant. Then they'd hear him speak, they're like, not that compelling. Apollos was a brilliant public speaker. He fit right in with that Greco-Roman culture. He would show up, I'm guessing he was a pretty handsome guy, super smart, super eloquent, but he kind of missed the details on the doctrine, and we get a passage in Scripture where a husband-wife combo had to pull Apollos aside and instruct him so that he would better teach the way of truth. So great public speaker, amazing proponent of the gospel, but kind of missed it on a few issues. So you can see people are like, he's amazing, and then other people saying, eh, not that great. And then Peter, he's the bold leader. Remember, he's the first guy to stand up at Pentecost and preach this super amazing, compelling sermon. So Cephas is another word name for Peter. He's also called Simon. I think the dude's just confused about his name. Just pick one. Just pick one. But brilliant leader and preacher, but he tends to be a little bit quick on the trigger. He's one of those like ready, shoot, aim leaders. And then kind of pick up the debris after that. And then obviously, Jesus is the perfect example of the one to follow. But I found it interesting in the passage that Paul says, some of you say, I follow Paul, some of you say, I follow Apollo, some of you say, I follow Peter, and some of you say, I follow Christ. He's almost insinuating that saying, I follow Christ is a wrong step as well. So I think this is what's happening. There's this debate going on between these three guys, Peter, Paulos, and Paul, and then you've got the Sunday school answer kid in there who's like, well, I follow Jesus. And he's probably like the most proud guy in the entire room. But here's the problem. Everybody is boasting. And if you're boasting about following Christ or about following one of his leaders, you can be sure of one thing. You're not actually following him. So Paul asks a series of questions. Funny, facetious questions. 
Is Christ divided? So if Apollos and Peter and Paul are all following Jesus, then if you're saying, I follow this person, or I follow this person, or I follow that person, if they were following Jesus and you were imitating them and they were imitating Jesus, wouldn't we all be following Jesus? And then Paul asked the question, wait, was Paul crucified for you? I thought I was just an apostle of Jesus. I'm not Jesus himself. I'm not your savior. I'm just your teacher. I'm pointing you to your savior, but I am not the one who died for you. And then we get into this really funny kind of diatribe by Paul. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, where people are like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and Paul and the Holy Spirit. Clearly not. That would be really weird. If, if anyone ever does that in the life of our church, I've just got to quit because I've done something wrong. Like, I baptize your Father and Drew and the Holy Spirit. No. And he, then he says this really funny thing where he gets into, I did, he's, he's talking about who he baptized or who he remembers baptizing. He says, the only people he remembers baptizing are Crispus and Gaius. And then it's like he wrote that down, and then he remembered, wait a second, I also baptized Stephanus and his household. And then he's like, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody. <laughs> so Paul's basically proving the point that he's not worthy of being followed to the end the way that Jesus is. Because he's like, I can't even remember who I baptized. <laughs> That's how inadequate I am. So the reason for the division in the Corinthian church and the reason for division in our church is because we've replaced true followership of Jesus with boasting about a variety of different things. I had my quiet time this morning. I've been praying faithfully. I've been attending Connection Group every week. I love this church. There can be this subtle replacement of actually following Jesus with boasting about following Jesus, being known as a follower of Christ rather than actually being a follower of Christ. Let me remind us all what following Jesus is would really look like in the example of Jesus. Famous passage in John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here's what following Jesus looks like. Taking the place of a slave. Doing the unthinkable. 
The reason the disciples push back on Jesus is because their feet were covered with manure and mud. And when you sat down at a table, only the lowest servant in the room would ever wash someone's feet. And Jesus takes that position. You can't boast and wash people's feet at the same time. To be a true follower of Christ is to humble ourselves and actually do these types of things. Not to be noticed by others, but because Jesus has served us in this way, our hearts are melted and we serve others in that way. The reason for division is because boasting has replaced true followership of Jesus. And so Paul gives us the solution to our division. Just one verse, really simple. We need it simple. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this is really fascinating. Christ did not send me to baptize. Do you guys remember the Great Commission? Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So if you're in the room right now and Paul makes this statement, you might raise your hand. Hey, Paul, I want to start an argument with you, even though you're talking about not arguing. Jesus did send you to baptize people. Do you remember the Great Commission? Here's what Paul's saying. Even something as fundamental and foundational to what the church is supposed to do is of distant secondary importance to the gospel message. Paul is ranking things. And he's saying, here's what's more important than baptism. The cross of Christ. Why is the cross of Christ more important than baptism? There are going to be many people in heaven, starting with the thief on the cross, who were never baptized, but are going to be with Jesus forever. There is not going to be one person in heaven who did not believe the gospel. And so, Paul is saying, this is the way that you solve your divisions. You rank absolutely everything under the gospel message. And so here's all of us. Here's where we are in the church. Just imagine us as a church. We're standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus. And there, up on the cross, is Jesus, naked, bleeding, crying out, abandoned, undone. And what does he say to us from the cross? Father, 
forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Here's how Jesus solves our division. Even though he had done nothing wrong, he said, I'll be the wrong one. Jesus shows us that it is not by trying to be right that we make amends with each other and we come together. It is by all of us admitting that we're wrong. Only he's right. No deceit was found in his mouth. He's hanging on the cross in our place. And so our division is caused by us saying, you're wrong, so you deserve this and this and this and this and this and this. And Jesus says, take all of that wrong and put it on me. Let me absorb it. Let me take it on. You be transformed by that, which means even the people who have hurt us and disagree with us, have talked bad about us, in this room, we can set them free. It is not possible to be standing at the base of the cross and talking to other people about how wrong they are. We worship. We stand in awe. And our mouths have to be shut with our fighting. Sometimes I think we need to see another story that parallels the gospel so that we can understand the gospel in a new way. I think it's kind of like we can be like inoculated against the gospel because we've heard it so many times. So I want to read you guys a story that's helped me see the gospel in a different light. It's from um, a book called Miracle on the River Kwai by Ernest Gordon. It's a story of um, something remarkable that happened in a POW camp. He says this. This is a true story, by the way. While building a jungle bridge one day, part of the forced labor inflicted on the POWs, a shovel went missing at a tool checkpoint. The officer in charge of the Japanese guards went ballistic. He emphatically demanded that the missing shovel be produced or the Scottish soldiers would pay dearly for their carelessness or worse, thievery. But no one from the Scottish line stepped forward to take the blame. The officer then pulled out his gun and threatened to kill all of them right there on the spot. The prisoners only needed to look at their existing wounds to know he meant what he said. Finally, one Scotsman silently stepped forward from the line. The Japanese officer holstered his pistol and proceeded to mercilessly beat the poor man until he died. When the gruesome moment finally passed, the horror-stricken POWs picked up the body of their fallen brother and carried it with them to a second tool check. Strangely, this time, no shovel was missing. In fact, it was discovered that the missing shovel was nothing more than a miscount. The tragedy had a profound effect on the prisoners. Word spread like wildfire throughout the camp that an innocent man was willing to die to save others. The event changed the way the prisoners behaved. 
they ceased their conflicts with one another and began treating each other like brothers, making sacrifices for each other to ensure their survival. The sacrifice even impacted how the POWs saw their Japanese captors. This is remarkable. When the victorious allies finally swept into the camp, those Scottish soldiers were not much more than walking skeletons, but they lined up in front of the Japanese soldiers and insisted that they not be killed. They knew in that moment that forgiveness was needed. That's the power of sacrificial love. It's unparalleled. A much greater sacrifice has been made for us. We're the ones who are wrong. We are not primarily victims of other people's sins. We are primarily rebels against a holy God. And God has responded to our wrongdoing with sacrifice, with grace, with love. The application is very simple, but it it is very costly as well. You have to let go of your bitterness That person who comes to your mind, who are you are holding in prison, you have to let them go free. You have to stop lashing out. And here's why I say it's incredibly costly. Because that anger that you've been venting on them, either outwardly or silently and inwardly, all those ways that you've been self-righteous and and tried to be better than them, here's what's going to have to happen. If you're going to show them love, you are going to have to absorb the wrongdoing the way that Jesus has absorbed the wrongdoing for you. There's a sense in which you're going to have to pay. And I think the question for all of us is, in light of what Jesus has done for us, are we willing to do that? And here's why I think we should be willing to do that. Because that's how the world's transformed. Then people will look in at this community and they will see that we are a broken, yet beautiful mess of people. They will see that we are still sinning against each other, we're still gossiping against each other, we're still fighting, we're still doing all those things, but we forgive each other. And I think people will look in and they'll be like, that's what I want to be a part of. That's where I want to be. And we have an incredible opportunity to do that in our society because no one knows how to do that. Because you have to be taught by Jesus. Let's pray that that would be true. Jesus, there's there's no way that we could have discovered this solution to division on our own. 
we try so many different things. We try putting on our best behavior and we try yelling at each other and we try passive aggressively showing each other our wrongs and we try giving each other the silent treatment and getting some space from each other. But we would never think just to forgive each other and to overlook each other's offenses, to be deeply wounded and hurt by each other and not to lash out, but to instead extend grace and love. Jesus, thank you for your words to each of us from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because we know that the gospel is, first of all, a message for us before it's something that we can live out. And so would you help us to internalize the message of the cross so that we can give it to one another? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.